Hey everyone, welcome back to Raising Unicorns by Harmon Brothers. And in today's episode, we share how you can effectively put your business ideas through the ringer to save money and time in the long run. Unicorns are real. In the past eight years, Harmon Brothers has helped raise five unicorns. Yes, that's five companies with a billion dollar valuation, with at least six more companies right on the cusp of becoming unicorns. Here on Raising Unicorns, we share the lessons we've learned to help you grow your business by tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars. It's time to start raising a unicorn of your own. All right, I'm super excited to talk about the topic today, which is how to test your ideas or your business or your offers, anything you need to test on a shoestring. How can you run simple, cost-effective tests that set you up for success so you don't have to waste time and money down the road? I'm super excited to have Scott Brown here with me. Scott's a longtime friend with some real street cred when it comes to creating products, taking them into retail, e-commerce. He's got product testing and manufacturing and gotten products into big stores and just all sorts of experiences. Experience. So I'm super happy to have him here. Interesting note, he has a viral video with over 65 million. I think those are all organic views. Yes. That's called Tour the States. Tour the right? States and Tour the World. If you combine those, it's probably... No, I think than... 65 combined. 46 okay. Tour the States, and then we've got another 20 or so million okay. Tour the World. Awesome videos that if you have kids, they may have seen that video in school, or if you're young enough, then maybe you learn the States by watching that video. Kind of cool story behind that that we'll probably have to get into another time. Then Scott is also working on a project right now called Paddle Smash. It's a game that I've played and loved. Hopefully you'll share some of those experiences with us as we talk about how to test and maybe how you've done some of that in a bit here. Nice to have you though, Scott. Nice to be here, Brett. Why don't we start this out with why we even want to talk about testing. What we have found with clients and even with some of our own advertising is that if you just jump into something based on your gut, things get pretty expensive pretty quickly. We've come up with a number of tests at Harmon Brothers, not only in deciding how to actually message things, but also what things to advertise. We have actually, in Harmon Brothers history, used a lot of gut. We've honed that spidey sense or that sense of humor, whatever you would call it, that helps us to figure out oh, what would be funny and also communicate the right message. It worked really, really well for us, especially in the early days when there was a lot of potential for video in particular to go viral. But as things have gotten more complicated, as algorithms have changed and become more complicated, we've had to figure out ways to rely, yes, still on gut, but also introduce data and testing, even focus groups into what we do so that we can be sure that when we're creating a campaign, which generally costs some money to get actors and production and all that kind of stuff, we minimize those costs in the front end instead of just jumping in just based on gut. Scott, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about a time that you've screwed up in the testing. What are some of the pitfalls? What did you learn from an experience like that where maybe you didn't test right or maybe you didn't test at all and what resulted from that? The first one that comes to mind, and I forgive myself for this, it was the very early stage of my career. I had just joined a venture capital firm in Chicago called Sandbox Industries. Uh-huh. They had hired me and a group of entrepreneurs to come in. They gave us office space and they were basically like, we know you don't have ideas yet, but we want to facilitate you coming up with good ideas. Mm -hmm. So you come in here, you pitch us concepts. It's sort of like a shark tank 
Esque atmosphere. We'll evaluate your idea, and if we like it, we will give you a little bit of capital to try it out. Like an incubator. Actually, sounds like a ton of fun. Traditionally, they bring in entrepreneurs who already have already. a concept. Right. This okay. was probably stage before incubator. Although we did call ourselves an incubator, but it's not a traditional incubator. It was just come in. We think you're scrappy. We think you have an entrepreneurial spirit. Come in. We'll see. They would pay you to come up with ideas. They'd pay you to come up with ideas. Okay. Cool. One kind of clever thing they did was it would have you write your ideas on a cutout of a goldfish. Uh -huh. So we had like hundreds of these goldfish cutouts. You'd take a magic marker and write your idea on that goldfish. And the idea behind the goldfish was they wanted you to treat any idea you came up with like a pet goldfish. Because goldfish usually die? Because goldfish that, uh... is a pet that if it died, it wouldn't be devastating. <laughs> I love it. Okay. It wouldn't be devastating. And yeah. you may have listeners that love their goldfish, but I'd say on yeah. the whole, more tears have been shed over the loss of a pet dog than a pet goldfish. Yeah, probably true. We had these goldfish on the wall. We'd then pitch our concept out to this group and the group would evaluate. Mm -hmm. And hopefully you'd get your idea greenlit. And if you did, you got certain amount of money to go out and test it kind of as cheaply as you could. So you had to come up with a minimum viable product that you could go out and test. And so this was my first test. Me, small group of co-founders, we got the money to open a kiosk for a brain health concept. So okay. the pain point was baby boomers are afraid of their cognitive decline. Is there anything out there that can help them ward off cognitive decline like Alzheimer's and dementia? And we had come across a bunch of cool stuff and we we're like, that's interesting. We didn't know about it. I'll bet most people don't know about it. If we were to aggregate that together into one spot, people might be interested. These are products that you guys are finding that kind of address this problem? It's all physical product, but it ranges okay. from $400 computer software down to brain teasers that are maybe 15 bucks. Okay a wide range of products, but we put them all into a kiosk at a mall in the suburbs of Chicago, thinking, all right, here is the cheapest viable way to test a brick and mortar concept with these ideas. And I would say this was an epic, epic failure. Okay. So epic nice. failure. Three months we ran this kiosk, and I think in total we did less than $1,000. Really? I mean, the kiosk alone was $6,000 per month. Uh -huh. So it was an epic failure. How many months did you run it for? Three months. Okay. Yeah. Summer of 2008. Mm -hmm. I worked that kiosk. So did the other co-founders. We took turns. Miserable experience. <laughs> and, you know, at the end, we were really disappointed, bummed yeah. out, because we still felt like we had an interesting idea. So what happened? Well, one was location does matter. And mm. I don't mean location like where in the mall is your kiosk. I mean that we're trying to sell $400 brain health software right, right next to hair straighteners and hand lotions. Okay, yeah. And no one wants to stop at a kiosk in a mall and talk about something serious like brain health. Or stop at a kiosk in a mall at all if, at, if you're me and just don't want to talk to people. <laughs> $400 software, no one's interested in stopping. And literally, okay. I don't think we sold one piece of software yeah. the entire three months. Makes sense. So we finished that test thinking this is a goldfish dead in the water. Thankfully, we had, number one, a mentor at this incubator that still believed in the concept. And number two, we were given an opportunity in a downtown mall. This downtown mall, this is fall of 2008. Recession is just starting. Yeah. These malls have vacancies. Well, this mall had seen our kiosk. One of the few that actually noticed us is a kiosk. Their recruiter, the one that fills the spaces, saw us, thought it was interesting, and offered us a location for, call it a tenth of the normal rent because they were desperate to fill that void for the holidays. Okay. And 
it allowed us to open our store, test it out in a location that made sense for that concept, and mm-hmm. it turned out to be viable. Mm-hmm. You know, over the next 10 years, we opened 40 locations across the U.S., and it became a real viable retail concept. We almost killed it based off of that initial test. All of it was is you've got to figure out the right environment to test your concept mm-hmm. so that you're reaching the right customer, number one, and number two, putting them in a spot where they're going to be open to whatever you're selling. Awesome. You didn't just create kiosks. The business was actual brick-and-mortar retail locations. Inside malls, the kiosk gave you the confidence that it could work in an actual stationary location. What was that process yeah, like, figuring I mean, out how to take that risk? The kiosk was, is this a viable idea? What we learned was maybe, but not in this environment, not yeah. in this form. And mm-hmm. so then the next test was, well, let's try it in a kind of more traditional brick and mortar form, four walls, come in, shop off of a shelf location. Oh, okay. And it allowed people to come in, interact, and not have their guard up the way they did with a kiosk. Right. You ask someone to come over to a kiosk, it got to a spot with this kiosk where I was offering people free products just to come over and talk to me <laughs> because I was so desperate for just any feedback. Right, okay. We needed feedback more than anything. We weren't even trying to make money on that kiosk. We just needed feedback. Yeah. We couldn't even get it there. So when we had a physical location where people could come in and they could semi-privately have an interaction about their own brain health, it allowed us to have that interaction and get the data that we were looking for. The first one was the kiosk, didn't work. The second one was an actual store. And you learned from that that, hey, like the kiosk isn't going to work, but a store just might. And that's it. And it was always testing and learning. So we opened this store. It was on a high street in Chicago, just off the Magnificent Mile. So Mm -hmm. you could access it without going into an actual mall. So then our next question was, well, does it work in an actual mall? There are far more malls than high streets in the US. Mm -hmm. So we thought, all right, let's test for our next three stores, a suburb location on a busy street, a mall location, and another high street. And we tested and learned from that. We found out that the mall location was what worked best. And then that's really where we took it and ran with it. So it was kind of testing and learning all along the way, trying to figure out the right location type for our store. You originally started in retail, brick and mortar. You made your way into e-commerce. What was that experience like? Was there testing that went on in that? Or was it just you realized at that time that, hey, in order to make it, we need to also be selling these products online. I think we knew out of the gate that we would need a website. We opened our website same day we opened our physical four-wall store. Okay. So they both launched at the same time. Far more attention and focus was given to the physical store. It just, by nature of that concept, requires more time and energy. You've got employees, you've got inventory, Mm -hmm. all of that. We all believed in an e-commerce opportunity, and so we were pushing that as well. But here was the conundrum, is that the magic of our stores was that we did live demonstration of every product we sold. Okay. So you'd walk into our store, and we would say, would you like to see how to play this game Otrio? We would have it out and open for people to try before they bought. And we did that with everything we sold. A traditional store that size, called a thousand square feet, would carry something like thousand products, a thousand SKUs. Our store carried 150. And we never varied from that. We always stayed at that number, 150 products. And we would phase in and out about half of that inventory every year. So we would test every one of these in our store. And it gave it kind of the optimal proving ground in our store. It was like these vendors were desperate to be in our stores because it was the optimal opportunity to find out if someone would like their product. If it yeah. didn't work at Marbles, it likely wouldn't work. Uh, and so we would do these 
live demonstrations. The conundrum then was, how do you do that online? That's what I wanted to ask you. Did you ever figure out how to do it online? I mean, in 2008, you wouldn't have been able to have augmented reality, 360-degree video, some of that kind of stuff that we're just experimenting with now. Were you able to figure it out, or was there something that you found that worked okay? I think there was something we figured out that worked okay, and probably not quite as well, but well enough. And that mm -hmm. was, we filmed a product training video for every single product we sold. So okay. even now, you can go onto the Marbles YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Marbles is no longer a concept out there. It was acquired by another company, but there's still videos used by these companies that mm -hmm. we created. We filmed us talking about that product as if you were in our store interacting with one of our brain coaches. We'd put that with every single product listing. And so it was kind of front and foremost, even before the photo in most cases, you'd see that video and yeah. you'd have, call it a 40 second intro to that product, us talking about it like you were in front of us. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love the idea of with e-commerce leading with video as opposed to a static image. They say an image is worth a thousand words or whatever. In gaming and those types of things that you are working in, the video is so much more powerful because you see the reactions of the people, you start to see how the game works and some of that kind of stuff. Using video before even going into images just seems like it can get you so far with people who are considering that product. The nice thing about games is there's this inherent viral coefficient to games. I don't even know what most of those words mean, but what I mean by it, <laughs> they're visually interesting to look at and to yeah, watch. Right. So number one, games are just generally appealing to watch someone play. But number two, when you play games, you're almost always playing with a group. Right. If you have an enjoyable experience, that tends to spread the word. Mm -hmm. Games, it makes a lot of sense to lead with video because what you're looking for when you're trying to evaluate whether you buy a game is, is this going to be fun for me and my family, me and my friends? Right. And if you see a group of people genuinely having fun, you believe that that could be you. Yeah, you want that thing, right? You want to have that same experience. So, cool. With the testing, even though the way you did it is probably the cheapest way you could have tested it, still seems like a really expensive way to test a concept. Really expensive. Expensive. I don't know what I would have done differently. There's no way I could have afforded it myself. Right. Going forward as I start other businesses, that's not what I'm looking to do. And really, I avoid ideas that mm -hmm. would require that level of capital to even find out if I have a viable product. You look at something, you say, ah, oh, that's probably too complicated to test. And so let's go find something that's also an exciting idea that we can test for cheaper. Specifically to the toy industry, there's kind of two paths you can take when you have an idea. You can either license your idea or you can self-publish your idea. Mm -hmm. And really, when someone comes to me and asks me my advice on what path they should take, almost always my decision is just based on how much money will it cost for you to get a viable product. Interesting. Yeah. If it's going to be a lot of money, I almost always recommend that you license that idea off to a company that has lots of capital and lots of ability to withstand the ups and downs of getting a product to market. It is very expensive to launch most products. The times when I would say it's okay to self-publish is if you're able to get it to market in an inexpensive way. So an example might be if you have an idea for a card game. Well, card games, number one, you can publish domestically. And number mm -hmm. two, you could print off 100 copies. Right, right. And those 100 copies will look like finished product. They don't look cheap. They don't look basic. Mm -hmm. They look good. Mm -hmm. Call it 500 bucks. Find out if you have a viable idea. That's interesting about figuring out how to, in your case, self-publish or to just go the royalty model. And so if it's more expensive, takes more capital than you have, then it probably makes more sense to do the royalty model, right? Almost always. 
one more question on the idea of the online marbles brainstorm. As you're getting products up on that website, obviously in retail, you have certain products that you can feature and the same actually goes for a website. Obviously you can search and find any product that you guys sell, but as far as figuring out what products to feature on the homepage or a category page or whatever it is, do you guys do testing around that? Did you find a way maybe you used in-store to try and drive sales online? Was there any interesting takeaways from how you figured out how to feature certain products on that? As hard as brick and mortar stores were, they were actually a beautiful proving ground for what we should do on e-com. Like I said, our stores were final say. If something couldn't survive in our stores, it would not have survived on our website. Mm -hmm. Likely shouldn't even survive in the world, truly, because they were coddled in our store. We knew everything about these products and we gave it the best. And so we would look at those sales reports from our stores. I mean, we had that data every single day. We would know exactly what was selling and we would be able to in turn feature it on our website. We didn't hold ourselves to the same restrictions for quantity of SKUs on our website. In our stores, 150 products. On our website, we had well over a thousand products. If you're taking out half of your inventory every year, you're losing some really great stuff. It just happens that way. But we felt that freshness in store was paramount. But on the website, that didn't matter as much because we were able to cycle through what we featured so often. We were able to take a lot of that stuff that had sold well in the past and continue to sell it on our website and take turns featuring that based off of what we were seeing in store. Tell me about your latest project and how you did the testing for Paddle Smash because you've launched it at this point. We were talking before the podcast, you know, you're selling on Amazon, you're selling through the website, been featured on TV and in Forbes article recently as well. So it seems like things at this point are really starting to take off. Tell us how you got, I guess, to this point from a testing perspective. Real quick background on how I even came across the product. So in my role at Marbles, I was in the seat where I was always taking incoming ideas, Mm -hmm. whether it was from already created product or it was from inventors pitching me a product. And I developed a fairly decent radar for finding good product, Mm -hmm. deciding quickly whether I thought it was viable, and just hearing pitches. So I was just constantly being pitched concepts. Two good things came out of that. I think I got a good antenna for it. Two people come to me with their ideas, and they still do that, even though I'm not involved at all with marbles anymore. Mm -hmm. I probably get approached with concepts a few times a week. Invariably, when I tell someone what I do for a living, I say I'm in toys and games, they always know someone or they themselves have created a game that they want me to consider. Interesting. Okay. I was playing pickleball with someone. He found out what I did for a living, and he said, oh, interesting. I've got a brother-in-law that's created a pickleball-like game. He doesn't know what to do with it. We play it at family parties all the time, but he's an engineer. He doesn't know how to market, doesn't know what to do with this thing. Would you be willing to at least chat with him? And I always take these calls. Yeah. Honestly, most of these lead to nothing. I'd say 98% of them. They're goldfish. They're goldfish. They flush it down the toilet. Every once in a while, I find a gem. And I chatted with Joe, the inventor, by phone first. He presented the idea over the phone. And I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. Joe, have you played it with anyone else? Uh And Joe was like, no, like just kind of played it with friends and family. I'm like, okay, well, warning flag for me. Anytime someone says to me that they've only played it with friends and family, it's like a big warning flag. I'm like, well, why haven't you played it with anyone else? Well, just the opportunity hasn't come up. I'm like, okay, Joe, this is what we need to do. It's like, we've got to figure out if this thing is real. So I'm going to come up and I'm going to try it first. So I went up to his house. He lives just north of Ogden in Pleasant View, Utah. Played it with him in his backyard and actually had a genuinely great experience kind of Mm -hmm. right out of the gate. I was like, all right, like something interesting here. Quick idea. It's pickleball meets spike ball. 
spike ball like where you've got this central base, but this you're using paddles. There's a net system and you're kind of bouncing it with your teammate bump set, smashing it into this base. And I'm like, all right, there's something interesting here. Well, I have a business partner. He and I were both on the hunt for what this next thing was. Interestingly, kind of if I were to go back two weeks, he and I were circling around a very similar concept. We actually sketched out Uh almost identical to what Joe had created. We had sketched out. Interesting. So it happens so much in this world of invention. It's just kind of things get into the ether. And so I called up my business partner, Tim, and I was like, Tim, listen, I think I maybe found something for us. Yeah. Tim's like, I trust you, Scott. Like, you've got a good antenna for this, but I'm not putting my money on the line or my kind of next year of my career on the line. Right. I'm flying out to Utah. So he flew out to oh, Utah. Okay. So he did put some money on the line. Well, enough he, to he trusted kinda, you yeah, enough. Yeah. trusted me enough, but he's like, we're not going forward with this until I've seen it myself. Yeah. So he came out. We in my backyard tested it ourselves. So there was a little bit of just family test with Joe, yeah. personal test with us. Yeah. But both of us knew enough. And at this point, I was like, I can't break my own rule here. We've yeah. got to go out and see what happens when we put it in front of people that don't know and love us. Right. We took it down to the local pickleball courts. These are people that I kind of loosely know, but they uh-huh. don't know what I do for a living. They don't know this is my thing. Yeah. So we, they, they know you're not very good at pickleball. They know I'm not very good at pickleball. <laughs> they know I don't have very good <laughs> I'm, ideas. I'm just kidding. Generally. You, could, you could beat me any day. So I, we set up the game and it was like bees to honey, flies to honey, whatever the idiom is. People stopped mid game. They were coming up to the fence. They were coming over yeah. asking if they could play. So uh-huh. very intrigued just visually. And right. outdoor games tend to do that. Like they tend to attract people. But the question was, well, was it fun? And so rather than say, this is a concept that we both really like. Uh And we're thinking about going forward with, what do you guys think? I think that's a broken question. It's a leading question and it will lead to tainted feedback. Right. We said, this is a game that we're playing for really our first time. An inventor asked us to consider it. We Mm -hmm. have no idea if this is good or not. Mm -hmm. Help us figure out if this is any good. Mm -hmm. And I think the kind of magic of that is it just allows people to put down their fear of hurting your feelings and just play and let you know. And they did. Honestly, like we got some constructive feedback in that. Was it specific enough that you could incorporate into the game at this point? Was it more the kind of feedback like, ah, it just doesn't look interesting to me? Like what kind of feedback did you get? Yeah, the biggest feedback that we heard over and over was they liked the idea, but it looked too big and heavy for it to be something that they would like to buy themselves. They can go (laughs) to pickleball courts if they want to play pickleball. What we're offering is a portable pickleball experience. For it to be a portable pickleball experience, you better be able to fit it in the trunk of your car. And the inventor's prototype, it was probably 50 pounds. It was was gigantic. Way too heavy to carry, way too big to be viable on a retail shelf too. And we knew this. And so we kind of took that feedback as, all right, For this to be viable, we need it to be able to be small enough that people can carry it and that they can easily put it into their car. So that was our goal out of the gate based off of that feedback was we need to create a product. And so we immediately started thinking, well, this base needs to be able to fold in half and store all the components inside. And that was really based off of that initial round of feedback there at the at the pickleball. Cool. Okay. So it did influence the product in a big way then. That's cool. On a positive side, we had one guy, number one, wanted to buy the prototype from us, uh-huh. wanted to invest in the company. At this point, we hadn't decided if we were going forward with it. Yeah. And then he excused himself. The whole time we were playing, he had this big grin on his face. Uh-huh. He was like giddy about it. Uh-huh. And then he excused himself and didn't tell us why. And we're like, all right, whatever. 15 minutes later, he comes back with his son. Okay. And he's like, I had to go get Dylan. I had to show Dylan this Mm, game. Cool. And we're like, okay, so interesting. Number one, it's got that inherent viral coefficient that Uh we're talking about. If you see it, do you want to tell someone else about it? Number one. And number two, this sort of father, son, parent, child Mm -hmm. relationship. 
I think is interesting. Going back to the inventor story, the inventor, the impetus for this was that he has seven kids, six of them sons, four of them teenagers, Mm -hmm. and they loved spike ball, but Joe could not play spike ball with them anymore. It was too hard. Okay. He's a structural engineer. He's like, I've got to create something that I can play with them. Interesting. And so he was trying to solve that pain point for himself, which was Mm -hmm. how can I, dad kind of in my late 40s, no -hmm. longer able to keep up physically with my sons playing spike ball, can I create a game where I can now play with them? Hmm. It's kind of the magic of pickleball is that it's leveled the playing field in many ways and made it so it's accessible across a broad range of ages. Right. So we were like, all right, that's kind of magical. He went to get his son and now we all played with a teenage son, older dad, and they were able to play together. They kind of trash talked each other, like bonded in kind of a way that dads and sons do. Uh And we're like, all right, that's kind of magical. Can we kind of take that and have that be part of what we think of as our core audience? So that's really interesting because I was playing it last weekend with a couple of neighbors and one of my neighbor's son came riding his bike back. He's, I don't know, 16, 17 years old. He jumped off his bike, wanted to get in and play with us. And he did. We played for almost two hours. Everybody had to learn how to play it. And then once we got going, we had so much fun. And it was a father and a son and a couple of neighbors. You know, the wives came out and were kind of watching. It was really fun. And I think that's what games do. And I think what you're saying with this whole testing thing is when that sort of thing starts to happen, when you see people who are basically giving their honest opinion by participating voluntarily in something rather than responding to the questions in a focus group or something like that, that's when you know you've got a winner as far as your testing goes, right? I mean, I think so. I think we put that product in its natural environment Mm -hmm. and allowed people to play it the way they naturally would ultimately. And then we got to see some of that reaction. And I'd say we're still so early in this that we don't know, but our hope is that that thing that we saw, that little small sample, Mm-hmm. is actually indicative of what it will look like on a grander scale. Yeah, that's interesting, especially from a marketing standpoint, because I think you're looking at, at this point, how do we get more people playing this so that more people can see it? It'll be interesting to see how video plays a role in that versus how just getting this in the hands of some people on the beach or out in a field, what kind of effect that has. I think so. I mean, I think at this stage, we're just so desperate to get it out there. <laughs> yeah. um, like We're like sending free samples out to people. Yeah. We had one lady reach out. She's like, listen, I know I don't have very many followers, but I have a very active cul-de-sac. Can you send me a free sample? And I (laughs) I promise to play it. I live in a cul-de-sac. This game works in cul-de-sac. It works in cul-de-sac. She's right. Yeah, we haven't, but I believe her. Uh, One kind of fun anecdote is that I set this up at a local festival in Alpine, Utah. Mm -hmm. I just had it out. We didn't have a booth or anything. I just had it out to play. I know of a couple of people that purchased based off of just playing with me there. One is in Highland, Utah. I've just sort of tracked this. So. He buys it. A few weeks later, he sends me a video of him playing it on a houseboat in Lake Powell. Uh And I'm like, that's great. Can I use that content on my social media? He's like, of course. So great. We've got user-generated content. Like that's lovely. But number two, his friends and family see this video because he's sending them links of our social media posts. Uh And it starts to spread within his community, community of kind of neighbors and community of friends and family. Right. He is solely responsible for selling 10 more units oh, just amazing. based off yeah. of that. He's like, hey, Scott, 
can I have a discount code that I can share with my friends and family? Well, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Like yeah. for sure. Yep. This is where we're trying to create kind of network of affiliates, right. a network of ambassadors for mm-hmm. us. We're more than happy to give you promo codes or allow you to kind of get a commission off of this yeah. because we know this is what gets something rolling. We've got two great pioneers ahead of us with Spikeball yep. and with a, a game called CrossNet, that that is really what they did. They got it out there enough that a critical mass of people saw it and it then reached this sort of tipping point where these people in these pockets start to tell their five friends, those five mm-hmm. friends spread to their five friends and it just starts to spread. The idea of the viral coefficient, it'll be interesting to check back with you and see how that kind of affiliate network or whatever is going, how that helps grow the business, I guess. When you're down the road a little bit, we'll have to check back in and see how that's going. That'll be really interesting. So you told me that part of the story, which I think is awesome. I talked to you on the phone a few days ago about people that I was playing with we're already thinking of people that they thought would love the game. And we were talking about that. We're like, oh, yeah, like Shane would love this. We just got to tell his wife about it. She'll get it for him for his birthday or whatever, right? And so I think, again, when you see those types of things where people are so excited about a product, that's when you know you've got a winner. At that point, you can start to invest more into it. It gives you more confidence in your, not just your marketing dollars, but in the business in general. There's different ways to grow a business depending on the capital that you have, like you said earlier, and also kind of the appetite for risk. Having a bunch of clues like that in these testing experiences that you have had probably gives you more confidence to invest in different areas, right, as far as growing the business. Definitely feel more confidence. I think we are definitely in the test and learn phase of this business. As we were developing it, honestly, our hope was to launch it this previous spring. And at this point, I have created, I think, 170 products. Wow. You think at this point, I would know that there's always stuff that goes wrong in the process right. and stuff did, you yeah. know, it's just hard to make product. It was hard to make this product. The biggest hiccup here was making a base that bounced properly, but wasn't 50 pounds. Right. And so that just took a ton of time, ended up going well past spring, well past summer. And we launched September 1st. And so we've kind of said, all right, well, now it's test and learn because, you know, fall's not the best time yeah. to sell an outdoor game. You have gifting season come up, but yeah, as far as the area we're in, in Utah, there's not going to be a lot of people outdoors playing this type of game in another month. And so part of it will be difficult, but it does give you this time during the winter to continue to test, to refine messaging, to create videos. I know you guys are building up social media content and stuff like that. So that'll be a good, that's a good time it. This is just like, this is when we fill up the storage houses for yep. content. And the other thing is that it gives us a chance to build awareness so that when we do go ultimately to brick and mortar, mm-hmm. we have at least some built in demand around the product because it is a scary right. thing. Historically, if you created a product, you'd go to a mass market retail store. You generally didn't have any sales history and you'd put it on the shelf and just pray. Right. I mean, you might have some marketing dollar to spend, especially the big companies, but if you were small, you would pray. We're trying to upset that balance a little bit, kind of trying to build awareness first before going to brick and mortar retail. What are some tips of ways that people can test it? So in your example, you have a product, it's very demonstrable. See other people playing it, they get interested in it. Think about maybe a more common e-commerce product. Maybe it's skincare products. Maybe it's a squatty potty stool. You're not going to get a group of people in the bathroom watching someone use a squatty potty and say, hey, like I need one of those. Through this process of learning to test this particular game and the many others that you've tested in the past, do you have other tips about ways that people can be testing out these ideas in ways that aren't expensive, that don't take a ton of time, and that will allow them to save time and money in figuring out, number one, is the product worth it? Number two, what's my messaging? Is the product market fit right? Some of that kind of stuff. Do you have any ideas around that? 
You actually recommended a great book to me recently called The Mom Test. Yes, great book. Rob Fitzpatrick. I think he has great tips. I would actually recommend this to anyone looking to get some insights into how to run good tests and ask good questions. I think it all comes back to the question. The premise of the book is if you ask your mom if she likes your idea, mom's going to always say she likes your idea. Right. Mom loves you. Mom doesn't want to hurt your feelings. Right. And I think that generally applies to most human beings. Mom's the best she example gets, of it. Yeah, she gets, she gets the bad rap for just loving everything. But yeah. Yeah, but I think no one likes to say mean things to you about your idea, or generally most people don't. I'll give this caveat. This is a very hard thing to do. I even experienced this. I knew all of this. I had read the mom test. I had experienced being on the receiving end of a thousand pitches where right. people did this incorrectly, telling me that their friends and family loved it. And still, I had fallen in love with Paddle Smash before I took it down to those pickleball courts. Right, yeah. At that point, I was like, I am in. Right. People better like this thing. Yeah. And so I really had to resist not asking leading questions. But you know, for me in that situation, it was telling them it wasn't my idea. But I think there are a bunch of other really good ways to do this. You don't ask them questions about your product. You ask them questions about their life. Mm -hmm. And I think you get really good and valuable insights around whether or not your product is solving a real problem for them. I know you like root beer. Oh, man, I love root beer. Yeah. If I had a root beer brand, mm -hmm. I wouldn't come to you and be like, Brett, I have come up with a new flavor. I've been working for a year on this flavor of root beer. It knocks most people's socks off when they taste this. What's the question that you're going to ask me? First question, I'm saying here's a potential bad question, right, is... Okay, yeah. All this background, I've worked really long and hard on this. Most people really like it. What do you think? And I'm going to say, I think it tastes great. Yeah, this is good root beer. Yeah, you don't want to hurt right. my feelings. No, we're friends. We're, I we're I friends. Ruin it's that not worth destroying a, that yeah, over a drink of root beer. sip of root beer. What's a better way to go about this? Maybe not even bringing the product up. Mm -hmm. Not even bringing the product to the table. <laughs> and just asking Brett questions. So, Brett, what is it you love about root beer? Now, that's a harder question where I actually have to think about it instead of just giving you a validating answer, right? One of the things I love about root beer is the fizz, okay? So you can get that in a lot of different sodas. And then it comes down to the flavor. I don't want my root beer to taste like one of those root beer barrel candies. It needs to be a little bit maybe more... I mean, we're talking about root beer. I don't want to talk about aroma and complexity and some of that kind of stuff. Mouthfeel. Right. <laughs> Mouthfeel, right, exactly. But mouthfeel, I think, when it comes to root beer is just the fizz for me. There's definitely things that I look for in root beer and and that's what you would be trying to get out without even letting me know that you have an idea or a new flavor of root beer or whatever. This is right? just me being, it should just be me being curious mm -hmm. about you. Right. Yeah, be a listener. This is me pretending to do an interview of you around things you like and especially getting curious about why you like root beer. So yeah. this is like, what food do you like to eat with root beer? Do you like to drink it in certain environments? Yeah. This is just like me surveying you. Yeah. So I had a chance here to kind of try this out with you, mm -hmm. which is I knew you had played Paddle Smash. So you told me that you guys had had a really good time. And so I was like, all right, here's a really good chance for me to survey Brett. Mm -hmm. So I first texted you a bunch of questions and then said, probably easier over the phone. Right. And I tried really hard to implement mom test questions mm -hmm. uh, where I was like, tell me what it was like to learn how to play the game. What right. was that experience like? What were hard parts about learning how to play the game? This is born out of a genuine desire. We know the biggest limiting factor, one of the biggest limiting factors to the success of our product will be whether people can figure out how to play quickly and easily. Right. Because there's so much competition for people's attention. Yep. And so we're like, all right, we've got to set this up for success. And so we're creating videos and we're sending that video with the kind of shopping notifications. When people are getting it delivered, they'll get served that video oh, as yeah. well. Wanted to know from you, Brett, what was that experience like? What was hard about it? What was good about it? You told me that you couldn't pull up the video because of internet 
issues, and so you had to yep. read the instructions. You yep. had to read them through a couple of times. All yep. of these are warning signals for me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right. So we need to figure out a way to get a, maybe a GIF version of some of the basics yeah. so that you don't have to have strong internet potentially to kind of see those. Right. We need to clarify those instructions and hit on the most important points. You told me that serving was a really tricky concept to get out of the gate. So yeah. I'm like, all right, we've got to right up front hit that up. So these are questions that led me to understand better what are struggle points for people. Man, light bulbs going off because you were doing the mom test on me and I didn't even realize it. You didn't it. know it? I didn't know it. Yeah, I really didn't. I mean, I knew I was giving you feedback and I knew you had the product, but I think the way that you asked the questions wasn't, you asked them in a way where I just wanted to talk about the experience that I had playing Paddle Smash. Super thankful to be able to have this conversation with you, talk about the awesome things that you're doing and learn from the way that you've tested things over and over in the past. So I really appreciate you coming on. I want to hit some of the key takeaways that we talked about today, maybe the ways that our listeners can incorporate some of that. So the first one I would say is that gathering that feedback or doing that testing really requires creativity. So it's not just asking somebody if they like your idea or if they'd buy your product, but you actually set up a kiosk in a mall. That was kind of the first test back with Marvel's The Brain Store. Then you had a frankly, maybe a lucky or just you were in the right place at the right time to do another test in an actual retail location. And that helped you to figure out that, hey, like this thing actually has legs, even though the first test may have quote unquote failed, you actually learned from it and were able to incorporate those learnings that built a successful business that was acquired. And so I think one of the important things that we always tell people is when you're testing, if it's a true test, there's no such thing as failure because you're going to be learning things that will help you to succeed in the future. And I think you illustrated that really nicely. You mentioned asking good questions. What about that one? I think good testing requires good questions. It's almost as simple as that. You just have to show genuine interest. You're having a conversation with someone. Treat them like a peer that you're having a conversation with, not like someone you're trying to sell something to. And then feedback can come from anywhere. You got feedback from, well, yourself first, then your partner flew in to test out the product. I guess initially the feedback that you didn't take his word for it, but was the inventor of Paddle Smash. I think the point here is, and it goes off what you just said, which is asking good questions, but you better not just ask your mom. And you ended up getting feedback, not only from people involved in the project, obviously, but you took it out into the real world, got feedback that you actually incorporated into the product, as well as helped you figure out that, hey, this thing actually has legs. We should invest our time and our money and, you know, our effort into that. So I thought that was great as well. And then one other thing, if you can just hit it, I loved what you said early on about goldfish and kind of that concept. I think we just inherently fall in love with our ideas really quickly. And it's not even always because we love the idea. We love that it's our idea. And so sometimes we just start to dig our heels in really quickly and really early. And having the mentality that your idea is like a goldfish, something that if had to flush it down the toilet, you would not be devastated. You might be a little sad, but you wouldn't be devastated. You kind of have to treat it that way, especially in the early stages. Certainly you should be passionate. Certainly as it gets farther along, you should be less willing to flush it down the toilet. But in those early stages, it allows you to be more flexible and more open to feedback and more willing to pivot and change if needed. Scott, thanks for coming. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate it. Some fantastic points on testing and kind of figuring this thing out. I'm super excited about Paddle Smash. People can go to paddlesmash.com to check that game out. And then obviously, as far as testing and learning more about the way that we do that, you can always email us, podcast at harmanbrothers.com. You can check out our courses in Harmon Brothers University. And again, Scott, thanks for coming. It's been a great conversation and uh, wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Brett. Tired of playing catch up on your marketing approach? Plan your whole 
year of ad content with our video strategy in a day. The Harmon Brothers are known for their ad work with Lumi, Purple, and Skullshaver, and now we're offering a 20-minute video that helps you strategize your best profit-pushing ad research, messaging, and testing for free. Because a win for great businesses is a win for all of us. Go to harmonbrothers.com forward slash video strategy to save future you a lot of stress with no pitch and nothing to buy.